Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. And so I'm just going to dive in our big question of the day. Who's your best boss ever? I was pleasantly surprised looking back at my career, which is you know, truthfully, been in a variety of different places, geographically, types of institutions. And I was pleased to realize that I had a lot of really great bosses. I had a lot of great leadership and a lot of great mentoring. So I have a couple, but certainly I would say one of them was the head of marketing, somebody I worked for at a large cultural institution in New York. I was really brought in to head up digital strategy for this institution. And, you know, arts and culture is a kind of a unique business. These are nonprofit business models, so they're mission-driven, but they function at a very high level, at a very high level programmatically, curatorially. They're bringing in artists from all around the world and serving audiences. So I think in this business, you're really balancing both the kind of mission-driven program with a very kind of brass tack sales operation. You have to sell tickets, you have to sell subscriptions, you have to get people in the door. So it's very just like any business, but the other component, of course, is fundraising. So engaging donors and kind of your mission and your vision. And so at that place, I had two bosses that were really great. The first was a director of marketing. And something that I always admired about how she managed was she always really managed with context. So if you think about transparency and management, this is obviously a big buzzword these days. Everybody wants transparency. And when you really consider it, you know, in my view, transparency really is about context. You know, how are you kind of identifying the why for the people that you manage and that team that you lead? You know, why are we doing this? Why are we making this decision? And I think in her case, she always identified the why and she always took the time to kind of talk it through with us. We weren't just tasked with get this campaign out the door. We got to hit the sales target. That certainly was part of it. But the reason we were doing it at that point in time or the why of doing it, it's supporting this program in this way. We're trying to reach this audience in this way. And that really gave us a different sense of purpose and mission in a lot of our day-to-day. They're all working in this industry, not for the money, but really because of the mission and because they get out of bed in the morning really excited about the mission of that organization. And so I think in this case, my boss at the time really was able to kind of ignite passion in all of us. We felt a sense of purpose. And I think that was primarily a result of the fact that we had the context. We understood the kind of background. Something that she did, which I thought was fantastic, is, you know, as a senior manager, as a, basically a vice president at the institution, she would attend senior meetings and whatever she could share with her team, you know, that was not embargoed or not confidential, she would share with us. She would give us updates about like what the big strategic conversations were. And of course, she had the blessing of the CEO, but it was really about giving us the full picture. So even, you know, some of the team that I managed as a director, uh, you know, kind of an email manager, for instance, they would understand why their emails were so important, why they were trying to communicate the program, what the CEO was thinking about programming for that particular uh, week. I just thought that was a fantastic way to manage. We never felt like our perspective was taken for granted or we didn't have a a say, if that makes sense. It felt like we really were contributing, that we all were kind of playing our part on really every level of the organization. 
my best boss ever, Fiona, actually sent me the show. And she is always sharing different resources with me, which I think kind of feeds into our mentorship relationship. And once she sent it to me and I started listening, the irony was kind of killing me because I thought, well, I, I think Fiona's that for me. And so I'd love to share kind of my experience with Fiona and just how, how she really inspired me. I can remember my interview with Fiona like it was yesterday. I remember she kind of walked into the room, started a casual conversation with me. I think she asked me maybe two to three questions with some open dialogue in between. And within about three to four hours after that meeting, I had a job offer presented to me. And so my upfront kind of interaction with her showed her decisiveness and her bias for action. And I think that oftentimes we see kind of the slow bureaucratic movement of, of how things can go and her ability to really push things forward and, and, and know when she's kind of had that connection was a really great first impression. And then the next great impression I had was when I met the team. So I remember going in and, and they had a weekly meeting where it was kind of the operations leadership team and they all did round table and they had an agenda. And I remember looking around the room and thinking, oh man, these people are smart. And I, I, I'm sure people have heard it, but you never want to be the smartest person in the room. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And I felt like I was just surrounded by the most high functioning team. And I think that's a really important tribute to their leader because she ultimately kind of assembled that team and made them and motivated them into who they were. She showed that you can bring a diverse group together and that doesn't mean it's always going to succeed. And so I think it's a, it's, it's definitely a tribute to, to her leadership in that sense. It was just clear right off the bat. It was clear the way they worked together. It was clear the way they challenged each other. There was always respectful challenges, people willing to question each other, ask uncomfortable questions. And I think that you need to have an environment that that feels safe. And that's not always the case. So when she's talking to people, she truly listens and I know that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it's really easy to always be kind of thinking of what's coming next and not being present in the moment. And she, she listens to people, she observes, and she trusts her network. And that's, I guess, another aspect of this is that a lot of her team came through referrals through other members of her team. And when you, and when you trust the people that you've brought in, they like working for you and they want to bring in other high-performing talent. And so it, it's almost like a magnet. And I think that Fiona has created a little bit of a magnetic field around her where she attracts good people because she's good to work for. I found out that I was expecting my first child a week after I started with Baxter. And so I had this huge opportunity. I was so excited to join Baxter. And I also was so excited to start my family, but my excitement was almost overshadowed by a little bit of guilt around the timing. I was just jumping into this goal and I, I felt like I was disappointing the organization and my leader. And so it was very conflicting. And I remember when I got to the point where I was, I was ready to tell Fiona, this is kind of what's going on. And I walked into her office and we just started chatting and I, and I told her, and I had this lump in my throat, like, like almost like when you're a kid, you feel like you're going to get in trouble. And I remember she just looked at me with a completely straight face after congratulating me and just said, Laura, women have babies. Women have babies. That should not impact your career. And you should never be concerned about what that's going to do to your career. It's not something that we can control. And it's a beautiful part of life. And that was that. And she never treated me different after that point. And, and with that being said, I worked really hard for her. I mean, she knew she was going to get nine months out of me. And I wanted to spend those nine months doing the best that I could do for the organization. 
And three weeks prior to going on maternity leave, she actually presented me with a promotion. And so it actually went into effect while I was on maternity leave, which is fairly unheard of. And it really put some emphasis behind her words. They weren't empty words. They weren't just kind of a stock congratulations. She truly meant it. And she showed me that just because you're going to start a family and just because you need to kind of sit on the bench for a year doesn't mean that you're going to be held back or that your work is not going to be acknowledged. First and foremost, I think they were very good at engaging their employees and galvanizing them to drive business strategies, to create a work environment that you know would attract and retain the best people possible. I think the second thing is they were very good at driving results. And I think that was very influential for me because I remember, you know, as I started out my career, I was probably a little less focused and more exploratory than I am these days. So it was great to watch people in action and how they actually drove results for a company. The third thing I would say is they were really good at making decisions in a timely manner. You know, I think one of the things people find really frustrating with leaders is that there's too much, you know, oh, we got to, and which is frustrating because you've got a bunch of people sitting there waiting to figure out what are we supposed to do? You know, how do we make the business better? So that's probably the third area. And then I think most importantly, and, and this is probably still rings true today, is the ones who really focus on innovation and stretching the way you think and the way you look at the world. One of the most authentic people I have ever met, you know, he, he was very driven to be successful, but not at the expense of others. I think he was one of these people that wanted to, you know, capture uh, the hearts and minds of his employees and bring them along on the journey. So he asked me, he goes, what do you think is your biggest value to our organization? And I was thinking in terms of, oh, it's my technical knowledge. It's my ability to deliver projects. And he said to me, no, he goes, your biggest value to the company is your ability to dream and innovate. He goes, because you're seeing things out there. He goes, that we who are in offices are never going to be able to see. He goes, so I want to absorb as much as I can from you, you know, and understand sort of what you're seeing and what your perspective is, because That'll help us with, you know, future plans for software. And and I was actually so surprised because I thought, geez, you know, I didn't even think you cared about what I thought. I I was more like, I just thought you cared about my delivering projects and making sure that I did them within scope, schedule and budget. But uh, he he was very, very unique that way. Okay, so I'm going to tackle this one a little bit differently, Christine, because I've had a lot of really great bosses and I have to really talk about what the theme has been throughout my entire career. And I'll say that the best bosses I've had have just had this unwavering trust in me and in my ability before I did, truthfully. So they're the ones who really saw my potential and trusted me to bring it out early on in my career when, quite frankly, I probably wasn't actually that confident. So when I think about my very first real job opportunity after completing my master's, it was at the YWCA with a great woman named Denise Doyle, who just loves to empower women. And I was so nervous. I'd never facilitated anything before. And I was about to facilitate something to the leadership team. And she said to me, you know what, Omnia, you've never done this before. She said, I know that. And you know that, but no one else knows that. And she was like, so just go out there and pretend you've done this a hundred times. And it's exactly what I did. And nobody could tell. (laughs) It was just, it was so empowering. Like it was just in, you know, you're fresh out of school, 23 years old. And it was just, such an awesome experience. And that's been the theme throughout my career. 
Linda was really my first ever boss. And she was, I like to call my confidence builder. She was willing to sort of put me in the positions that I had never, never been in before. And she trusted me. So I I remember the very first time, actually, we were going through a, a brand and marketing session. It was my first time meeting with a big group, a big branding marketing group. And I was at the table and I was obviously the youngest one there. Uh, I was probably three months into the job and, you know, they were presenting a very robust brand presentation to Linda and the CEO of this new company in that room. I'll never forget. She, she paused and she said, well, I think we haven't heard from everybody as they were getting feedback. And she said, Stephanie, do you have anything else that you would like to add to this after the the presentation was done? And you know, that asking for my opinion at such a young age and and ensuring that I had a seat at the table was something that stuck with me and something that I have actually carried forward when I've had younger team members working with me is to give them that confidence that they can speak and they can have a seat at that table and, and don't hold back. You might be learning, but everything that you're adding is adding value. And I said in this meeting with him, Matt, like, how do you, how do you do this? Right? Like how, how do you put others first like this? He said, I do it because I care. And those words stuck with me because it showed that just because you're in this working environment and he's a boss, people have emotions. We're all human and we've got, all got challenges. So he's, he's honestly somebody who showed me how to lead. My kids are in ski racing. I came from a ski racing background. And one of the great adages of ski racing is the clock never lies. And I think the wilderness is that aspect. You can say many things, you can hide behind many excuses. But at the end of the day, when you're on a canoe trip and you're cold and you're wet and you're miserable, there's nowhere else to hide. You know, I always say there's there's two types of leaders in this world. There's the people that complain about the leaky tarp and there's the people that go out and fix the tarp. And you know, what we're trying to do at Wild School is take those kids and show them that, you know, you got to fix the tarp. No one's going to fix it but yourself. And you can complain all you want. But at the end of the day, it's just you and the elements. Personal accountability. And I think it's, you know, those, we talk a lot about our school's natural consequences. And it's really hard for someone in kindergarten that doesn't wear their gloves or jumps in a puddle and is freezing cold to see those connections, but through repetition of those natural consequences, you quickly see, you know, if I do this, then that's going to happen and you can see it directly. And again, it goes back to that analogy of in the wilderness, there's nowhere to hide. If you forget to bring a matches on a canoe trip, you're going to be pretty cold and hungry that night. And there's no one else, you know, no one else to be responsible except for yourself. How does a leader create psychological safety or how did you see this leader do that? It really came down to her being quite authentic and who she was as well. What I really loved about this particular leader is she was just who she was. She's wonderful. She was just actually a little bit rough around the edges as well, which I really loved about this particular leader because it just made me feel as though it could be myself. And she allowed me the space to just really come in and be myself. And I think being her authentic self and and acknowledging that she necessarily wasn't a hundred percent polished herself created that space that I felt really comfortable to be myself as well. One thing that really, I think makes a huge, huge impression on me anyway, is a leader who meets you where you are. Not everybody can do this, listening and receiving the information that you're sharing from a place of empathy where you're at, whether that's 
where you're at in your role and your expertise and your growth in that role or where your role sits in the organization and the level of influence that you may or may not have, whether or not you're able to unblock yourself. I didn't feel like I was ready, but they believed in me. So I think the trust and the belief in my ability and they had confidence that I had what it took to get the job done. So that was super important to me. And and they were really open in listening to my ideas. But at the same time, they had the courage to tell me when I wasn't being realistic. I was part of projects that were large, big clients, and they had expectations to deliver. It put some fear in me because I was like, oh, how am I going to do this? But they really believed in me and and helped me along when I had questions. And I always felt like I could go to them to ask them those questions that I didn't feel like I had to know it all. And, and I think that's super important. And that as a leader myself, those are those things that I find are really helpful for my team as well. Just, you know, I don't know it all, but I'll help you through it. You know, when I think of just Mina, what her real strength was that she recognized the strengths in others that they might not even see themselves. You know, my story coming over here, I knew three people coming to Canada. I was a teacher. You know, it was, it was going to be very difficult to get into that industry. I took a chance and, and met with Jasmina about an administrative role in this small investment firm. And basically, she gave me the role straight away. No questions asked. I was shy. It was a new environment. It was a new industry. I was, you know, quite, quite introverted, I would say all those years ago and and she saw the potential and basically within a couple of months she took me into her office and said Mary I really think that you're made for more than this role I see a sales trait in you and I think that you'd be really successful in trying that aspect out how do you feel about going into the sales side of things and so you know I took a leap of faith you know she really just how she positioned things to me but throughout the years has really been, you know, give it a try. If you fail, it's okay. But, you know, anything's possible if you put your mind to it and if you work hard. And that was a real mentality that I already had, you know, the work hard and just put your head down. But she gave me that opportunity and it has really led me onto the track of, you know, sales progression that I've had ever since. And I will say that at the start, you know, it's it's quite intimidating to be part of that. And you're you're having this inner conversation saying, well, I'm not going to speak off. You know, I'm just here. I'm very green. I'm very new. And nobody wants to hear what I want to say. But ultimately, she was encouraging you to get past that and really you know, speak up, empowering all of us to do that. And another maybe conversation I was having was that I was one girl among a bunch of guys in the sales role. You know, back in the day, there wasn't that many females doing this. Mm-hmm. And while we had a number of women who were empowered in our company, and I would say she built that as well. She was very much an advocate of women and where we needed to go or where we belonged and built us up. Well, I'm going to go back in time a little bit. I'm 53 now, and, and this this individual came into my life in the mid-80s. So I was in my early 20s at the time, fresh out of college with a basic electronics diploma, very eager to start using that knowledge. It was more than just a, a employer-employee relationship right off the bat. He had a knack of drawing people in and making them feel so absolutely welcome 
and so individually important to the success of his business that you couldn't help but love being around this man. I'll give you an example. When I first started, it was right during the time that they were doing inventory at the store. And this was a store that not only sold electronic devices such as, you know, sound systems and video uh, machines and, and television and so forth, but they also did repairs on all of these products. So he also sold electronic components, printed circuits and, and IC boards and, and all kinds of different components and so forth. So each individual component during the inventory had to be counted, obviously. So he tasked me, one of the first tasks that I had was to count the footage of wiring that we had, the different types of wiring that we sold to people. There I was rolling out these coils of wire that had thousands of feet of wire on them and counting every foot manually. And he let me do this for about an hour. And then him and one of the other employees came behind me and the two of them were laughing. And I looked at them and I'm like, well, what's, what's so funny? What do you... And they said, you know what? You're going to make it well here. I said, why is that? He says, we, we don't count the wire by the foot. He says, we just estimate the roll. So right off the bat, you know, they, they, they played a little trick on me and it made me feel accepted day one. It's a very difficult thing to explain when somebody leaves that type of impression on you that it sticks with you for the rest of your life. And I'm going back almost 40 years and I think of this man right now and it still brings joy and happiness to my day whenever I think of him. And I try, now that I have my own employees, I'm trying to be the same type of person as he was with my employees. So my best boss was Barbara Luttrell. What really made her a best boss is that she was someone who was very experienced and had grown up in the industry in a, a kind of a rigid formula as far as how you got started, how you got to the next spot, you know, what you say, what you do, even what you wear. And I remember her bringing me into her office the very first time we were going to go out on the road together. And she was, you know, again, quite senior to me. I was not intimidated by her because she had just this wonderful open nature about her. But we sat down to prep for the meetings. And again, we had this, this set presentation. It was very stiff. There was no flexibility in it. And when we were walking through it and kind of deciding roles and responsibilities for the share, she said to me, you know, what's really important is to bring your personality to it, Risa. You really want to have the people that we're talking to see the passion, see why we are different, get the words off the page so that it comes to life. And so by bringing your personality to it, you're going to be successful. And then dovetailing with me, also a very passionate person, I'm going to take that energy forward as well. I am going to be really highlighting things that I know will spark to these clients. And again, bringing it off the page. And that just gave me that early, the early confidence to do that, to not just follow a script, but bring in the personality, bring in my style. So now my question for you is, I get challenged repeatedly about the impact of a great boss financially, if you're investing in your people, like what is the return on investment? So can you think of the impact that her leadership had to the bottom line? For sure. And I think, you know, what I was saying kind of alludes to that as well is that it brings a commitment from your people and it motivates you to really lean into your strengths and work hard. You know, like I was 
working for Jasmina in my mind, you know, and a lot of us would say that it wasn't just, I wasn't me in a silo. I would say a lot of us were doing this for a person versus a thing, you know, like it brings it to life and it keeps you engaged. It gives you purpose as well, which is something that I read in the book about the All Blacks and legacy. So they talk about purpose being very important for what you're building towards. And if you have the right leader at the top, then they're communicating that in a way that is tangible and engaging and nothing can drive people stronger than that, I think. Yeah, I would say the big one is you will find people will galvanize and really push themselves to do their best for the organization because they know if they do their best for the organization, that's probably going to mean good things for them. You know, whether it's, you know, compensatory, whether it's, you know, professionally um, moving your career through the ranks. Well, definitely we see engagement levels rise, right? And we know Mm -hmm. that engagement leads to productivity and people are more invested in their work. You're able to get a little bit more of that discretionary effort. So that, that I think has a deep dollar value associated with it. We also see less absenteeism, lower turnover. Like those are all things that that we've seen studies that demonstrate having a highly engaged workforce will impact. So I think back to the opposite. So the ones, the roles where perhaps they didn't have the best boss ever. And what happened there? I didn't feel motivated. I didn't do as great a job. I wasn't pushed. I didn't feel the need to really do much more than my description. And so each of these leaders, not only did they shape who I became as a leader and who I am today in my career, but I did my best work for them because they knew what I was looking for. And so I think the ROI is that you're just going to get a better return on the person that is working for you at that time. When I think of bosses that I've had and, and the difference there, they they always thought what was best for the business, but even though their name wasn't on the building, they, they thought about the business and how it was important to, they weren't focused on themselves, but it was for the good of the company. And when I say company, I mean the people as a whole. You know, if, if uh, we're all working towards the goal, the vision of the company, it's not about dollars and cents, but what's good for the people. Because when people are happy and feel good about what they're doing and they feel like they're a part of something, then your business is going to thrive. It's going to because you feel like you, you've got a part of that vision. Well, I think the benefit to the financial aspect of things, I think, was we did work hard for him. It was not a chore to do because we wanted to do it because he empowered us to to make those decisions and to succeed. And when the business succeeded, we succeeded because he treated us as if we were a very important part of that business. In many cases, we were because we were the day-to-day face of that business. The way we treated his customers reflected on him. And we took pride in providing that customer service that was the the, the keystone to success back then. Have you ever had a not so great boss? You don't have to name them or shame them, but you know, what was the impact on that? Like for you, like what was the impact of their leadership on you? And and what were some of the things that uh, you could identify that were not great practices? I think that we all have had, you know, kind of the micromanager you know, supervisor or boss who just uh, 
you know, really wants to control every everything down to every last detail. And so I think, of course, those are tough circumstances to work under, particularly if you're operating at a high level or you're achieving the goals in your job. You know, it's one thing if you're not doing your job and the manager has to step in, of course. But so I think that that kind of approach to kind of micromanagement is really challenging. But something that I've always found with bosses, the bosses who are very protective of hierarchy and very protective of networks. So, you know, you as kind of a 20-something assistant, for example, or manager trying to learn and trying to grow, those folks who really didn't want you in the room, who really kind of, you know, leaned on that hierarchy to kind of not bring people together, not bring them in, not let them have access to their professional network. I always found that really challenging because, of course, you're not setting up an environment where a person can learn and grow and do better at their job. And so that that was always, I think, the more challenging type of aspects from the not great bosses. But I would say those that sort of had their own agenda, I think in some cases, the ones that are like, you know, demoralizing and, and and treat people in a way that's inappropriate. I would say these two individuals didn't really care what their employees thought of them, didn't really care how they felt. It was more about like getting the job done and, you know, how do I maneuver my way through this organization? You know, what do I need to get accomplished in order and, and, and in, in order to move ahead? And I would say they had their own interests ahead of the people that work for them, which I don't think you can do and be successful. Yeah, I, you know, I've been fortunate. I only have one boss that I didn't enjoy working for. She just had the complete opposite of my other bosses in terms of lack of flexibility. This individual experienced what I think was hardship early in their career, and they didn't extend the olive branch and make it easier on the next person. They, in fact, made it more difficult by, you know, For example, when I would come in 15 minutes late to work because my kid was sick and I had to do drop off and all these sort of things, the expectation is I would stay 15 minutes behind, right, to make Mm. up for those 15 minutes. And it was just that micromanagement and it really took away any motivation I had to do anything above an extra, like above and beyond. Right. And I was fortunate to recognize that that wasn't a workforce that I wanted to be in. And I left very quickly, but I know a lot of people don't have the opportunity to leave and go somewhere else and are stuck in these situations. For me, it really demonstrated for me what I didn't want to do with my teams. Right. And so Now, when I lead, I I think about the whole person. I think about, you know, what else they have going on in their lives. And people are going to have good days and bad days. And they're going to have things that happen in their personal lives that we have to accommodate for. And it really demonstrated to me what I didn't want. Oh, I think that's a great answer. And it's, I, I hear that a lot. It's the micromanagement. It's, you know, to me, focusing on how many minutes you're in the office is, is just so irrelevant to real productivity and engagement and accomplishment, you know, like we're not in the industrial age where you're, you know, if you're putting parts on a car, for example, then those 15 minutes matter. Right. But if you're. Yeah. And I think also just the recognition that people are like, there are times, right. There are times where leaders do need to micromanage more than they want to because Mm -hmm. individuals simply aren't performing and that does happen. Right. Right. But that should be the exception to the rule and not your main. Like that shouldn't be the rule that you apply to everyone. It should be almost a last resort when you have to performance manage someone. Unfortunately, I think leaders do the opposite. They start with the assumption that, you know, employees they can't do it. it. And then they 
have to, you know, they have to earn their trust. And I think that's just a really negative way to, to build a relationship. Very backwards. I had this one boss who I was uh, working as a landscape architect and he hired me on to uh, be a landscape architect. He was not a landscape architect, but he just, he felt like he knew everything about landscape architect and he would sit there and he would talk and talk. I go and ask him a simple question and he'd, he'd talk to me for you know an hour and a half. I'd have to work late in the night to finish the work because I had spent half the day just listening to this person talk to me about absolutely nothing. He just got to walk away. I'm like, that, I can't do that. I just can't. That's insulting to a boss. He's like, trust me. And so I came back the next day and, and he was talking and talking and talking. And I just stood up and just slowly walked out of the room <laughs> and <laughs> sat down at a desk. And he followed me back to my desk and and I just ignored him and kept working. I think he sat there for another hour just talking to me. I just completely ignored him and worked away at my computer. Wow. That goes to show you not so high on emotional intelligence. Completely unaware. I was used to people not listening to him. It was ingrained in his his DNA that that was behavior to just stand up and leave and walk away. But uh, you got to figure out those coping mechanisms with certain people. You know, it's interesting when you talk about that personal accountability, though, and how you teach that, because like you said, all of a sudden you have more leash, but more personal accountability, which is counterintuitive to a lot of leaders. They almost feel like if they're not there, you know, micromanaging or coaching the task, that somehow it's going to go wrong. And I think this is amazing because it was just such a perfect example of how they actually got more value out of you by stepping away (laughs) and giving you personal accountability, which was important to you. Yeah, hundred percent. And letting me fail. I mean, I think failure is something that we, you know, we talk a lot about a leadership, but we don't truly let people ultimately fail. So worried about how it looks and how it stacks up. And then unfortunately, I think we take that into our kids. We certainly do in school system and we really do it badly in our parenting right now. Well, I think in your working life, eventually you're going to come across those bosses that that you might not work as well with. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had I've had a few. I think uh, similar to what Cher says, bosses that we always said beat with a stick had that attitude of like do what I say. It just doesn't work well because it it makes you feel like you're at a disadvantage. I've raised two sons, and one of the things that I learned as a mom. And I know, you know, it's a different job, but at the same time, you're taking care of people, right? People leader. And one of the things that seemed to work better was when I listened to them and instead of telling them what to do, listen to what they wanted and understanding, having that conversation saying, uh, well, this is what we need to do and making suggestions or making recommendations. And you can do that with your team as well. And I remember the leader, there had been a number of transitions while I was on maternity leave and, and the leader, I was up for promotion and the leader told me very upfront that she didn't think that I was qualified for the position because I had a son and the role required travel. This was pretty devastating. And I think something that came up to me was, ah, this is still happening. Um, So there was a little bit of an aha moment. But I think part of my passion in moving forward and what I've learned to take away from that is to be an advocate within the space and especially with young women or women in general. You know, moving into STEM and technology is exponentially more difficult when, when you're a woman. And, you know, these things like this really affect your career. And so it was devastating to realize that these things still unfortunately happen to women and there's barriers. And it's another thing when it's coming from 
from another woman. So I think the thing that I definitely took away from that story and that scenario was be an advocate in this space and and, uh, encourage women, advocate for them, make sure that they we're holding space for women and and women, especially with children. Yeah, it just felt confining. It felt that there was this model that you needed to follow or not. It was really, it was black or white. And I didn't fit into this person's model of, how to be a sales leader, how to fit into the organization. And unfortunately, she did nothing to help it. She really, it was just, you know, kind of her way or the highway. Um, And I tried to learn and adapt a bit. And then that came to a point where I realized it's just not the right fit for me, right? There was just too much adaptation that would have happened. And then I would lose myself and I didn't want to do that. So, and I did reach out to Barbara during that time and asked for advice. And she said, it's not the place for you. You got to go. And that's brilliant because again, you know, I think we don't talk about this, but I'm a big advocate also on mental health. And when you're trying to use a lot of your mental, emotional real estate to conform into a box that doesn't quite fit, it's quite exhausting. And it, it limits performance, right? We never get the best performance out of people, but it's also can be very stressful and very exhausting. It can turn into health problems and mental health problems. So, I mean, at one point in my career, and to be honest, it's so funny. I kind of joked that they used to kind of hit me and say, get back in the box, get back in the box. And then I left and started my own business. And now I get paid very well to be out of the box. <laughs> and so it, it is just one of those, like, you know, if you don't get too personally attached to why don't I fit? Why don't I fit? There can be such a much better road ahead, but it is, it's, it's a feeling of rejection regardless of, you know, we all just feel that, right? We want to fit in and we don't want to be the one that can't fit in. That's right. And that's exactly how I felt. But then once I moved on, I was happy again. And and my skill set and my personality was fully embraced. So I'm just going to come to, you know, kind of one of my closing questions, which is if you had to teach or advise future leaders on how to be a best boss, Give me some really tactical advice. Like how could they implement this in a very useful way? Get to know your team. So make sure you take time to talk with everyone on your team in a way that's not, we have an objective to this meeting. So if it's a 15 minute touch point with your team, do it. It will always be worth it and pay attention to what's important to them. I think, think about the whole person. And, you know, we do a lot of this diversity and inclusion work right now. And we tell people to bring their full selves to work, but then we don't treat them as a whole person. So for those of us who want to be better leaders, I think we need to think in the context of what else is going on in their lives. What else might they, might they need support with? What else can I do to, to facilitate them actually bringing their best selves to work and, and reaching their potential And also recognizing them, you know, I didn't talk about that today, but recognition is huge. And just, you know, it can be as minor as actually thanking your employees for a job well done, you know, but really giving them that recognition and and ask them how they want to be recognized, how they prefer to be recognized. And then I I think even just those two things, if you really focus on those two things, I think you'll have a stronger, more productive team. I would just say very simply, just make the time and show up for the hard conversations. Even if you have no idea what you're going to say, just show up. Nobody expects you to have all the answers. It's all good. 
I would say to make sure that you're creating the conditions that all of your people that you manage or you lead feel safe and they have that opportunity to be really authentic. I know that there's lots of data and lots of stats out there to say that when people do feel as though they belong in a culture and they feel really that psychological safety, you know, that's another buzzword, but they really do great things. And of course, they impact your bottom line. They think of new tooling. They think of new uh, innovative ways to do things and they really do progress your organization. So being able to create that environment where people feel safe, they can be their authentic self really does impact the organization and the success of an organization. So in terms of advice, I think it depends on what stage you're at of leadership or getting to leadership. You know, depending on that stage, I would give different advice. But in thinking about great advice that I got at the beginning of leadership, I was told I was coming in, I was reading every leadership book, I was trying to, you know, talk to everybody I knew that was a good, a great leader, trying to get tips. And ultimately, it's very hard to put it in words. And that's what I noticed when I was looking for advice. And the best way it was put was forget about the rest, just get to know your team. Just cut out the noise and take the time to really get to know them. It will take time. It might take longer than you expect. But ultimately, once you do that, you will be able to navigate things a lot more. You'll have their trust. You'll have their open honesty. And the only way that you can succeed as a leader is excellent communication between you and everybody else. And so I find that to be just simple, but very effective advice. I think when you're managing a team, whether it's a department or, you know, a small team, even if it's, you know, one or two people, I think, you know, in whatever functional area that you're operating in, I think it's really important to take time and to reflect on how you fit within the larger picture. So I think we're very task oriented in America. This is something that's just part of our business culture. It's like, you know, you got to get your tasks done. You got to move on. And I think as a manager, you know, certainly managers are always trying to balance task-based work, you know, and leaders are trying to move certainly at a top leadership level away from tasks and more managing other people's work and focusing on strategic decisions and partnerships, for example. But I think if you're managing any team, you really have to step back and say, why are we doing this? How does this connect to the company's overall strategy? What's our piece of it? And why is that piece important? And if you don't take time to do that, people are just working in a vacuum. They're just doing their tasks. They're just completing, and they may be getting them done but they're not going to be motivated over the long term to kind of deliver for you. So I think that would be something that I feel is really important as a manager is you're connecting back to that bigger picture and again, communicating it over and over. I also think, of course, as managers, our job really is to help our employees grow. The best outcome for you as a manager is your employee that's been working for you, that they're doing a phenomenal job. You've connected them to your own professional network and helped them leverage informational interviews and other opportunities. And if they leave, that's you know not ideal for your day-to-day business in the short term, but it means that they're going on to if they're going on to something better, you've really done your job as a manager. I think so much of it obviously is contingent on doing a good job, right? So let's preface the whole idea with, you know, as an employee, you need to be doing an outstanding job and you need to deliver on your job. But if you are and you have that type of boss or leader, 
you're absolutely right. It's going to pay dividends down the road. And you're really going to see a more of an industry-wide impact over time. Because yeah, the connecting, you know, leaders connecting their employees to their broader network can make all the difference for people as they develop their career. You need to be able to speak intelligently about your numbers. And you also need to understand what your team's going through. So I understand that not everybody can get into all the details all the time. That's why you have your teams, but know what's going on. Have your eyes on on what's going on at all different levels and make sure that you can speak intelligently to what what the numbers are saying so that you know where you need to focus extra energy and where you may have kind of risks and opportunities in your PL. The biggest thing I would say is the virtual world is not working for everybody. I think it's offering a lot of flexibility that we were maybe missing in our lives. Baxter's already a fairly flexible organization, so not a huge impact there, but people are trying to balance being moms, dads, teachers, full-time employees, therapists. They're, they're trying to balance so many hats and they're being asked to do the impossible. And so understanding how in this virtual world, you can still connect with your team. One thing I did last year was we had a weekly meeting with, with my direct reports. And instead of it being business related whatsoever, it was 30 minutes weekly. We picked a random challenge you basically played a game and joked around on a Zoom for 30 minutes. You got points and whoever had the most points got a gift card. And it seems so trivial, but it was probably 30 minutes a week where I saw a large group of people laugh together that I wasn't seeing anywhere else. And one of the things that I talk about a lot when I'm working with you know high potential talent is like relatability matters. So like if I can anticipate you and I understand you and I see you as relatable, it's easier for me to anticipate how to work for you and how to get things done. So like, if you think of a team on a, on a field, they're all trying to anticipate each other, right? They're trying like, are you throwing me the ball? Or are you not throwing me the ball? Like, you know, it's kind of, we're trying to figure out, oh, does the coach want me to grab the ball? Not, you know? And so we're, a lot of things are happening silently through anticipation. And a lot of that happens through the relationships that we build that make people relatable. Right. Absolutely. And so when you, you know, it's just interesting when you talk about this, because the idea of quote unquote, what might be perceived as wasting a half hour is in my opinion, actually putting all the glue into the tiny little cracks of the team, you know, that might otherwise sure. kind of wear over time. Absolutely. And it's tough. Like I, I don't doubt, I mean, my normal day was eight hours of meetings. And so it's tough to make time for that, but it's worth it in the end. You know, when I look at the people I've been, I've influenced most heavily and how successful they've become, I'm like, okay, I must've got it right somewhere along the way. Because normally when I, when people ask me to describe myself, if I'm interviewing them, I, I tell them all the time. Yeah. I think if you talk to most people that work for me, they tell you I'm tough, but I'm fair. And that I do care about people in general. But, you know, I, I think I sort of followed that approach because what I started to realize was most of the people that worked for me as years passed, they actually were really successful. Some even exceeded, you know, my level of success, which I'm really proud of because I'm happy for them. You know, and to me, that's a mark of, you know, how well did I do when you talk about metrics, you know, how do you metric your own leadership like results? And so it's not just what you do for the companies that you work for, but it's those people that work for you and, and, and really, you know, gave it their all did, did, did they get the right return? And I would like to think in most cases, the people that work for me that I invested in and they invested in me, yeah, they've done, they've done really well. Cause I know when I decide, you know, I'm, I'm done professionally, 
I'm not going to look at all the numbers and the things that I did and how many projects I got successful and, you know, how much service revenue did I generate or, you know, how much trading dollars did I save a company or any of that? I mean, that's all great stuff, but it's, it's a snapshot in time. The thing that endures and that's over the whole course of your career is, you know, the people that you impacted, did you leave a leg, a leadership legacy to be proud of? Do people, have they, have their lives been better or enriched or have their careers been better enriched by working for you or having a relationship with you? That, that to me is, I think, more important than the other stuff. We teach a lot about empathy and, you know, just in that is self-awareness and understanding, you know, beyond yourself, getting out of your own emotions, getting out of your own world and seeing it other lenses. And I think once you can do that, then you can see things a lot more clear you know the students sitting by themselves eating lunch you're outside of yourself you're seeing that so it's a difficult thing to teach especially to younger students but we just we do it just by repetition just constantly flipping things around you know the teacher saying you know the student outbursts and and not listening flipping that around like how is that what you're doing right now making me feel and really trying to get an answer not the like, I'm not good. You're like, no, but like, like if you were talking right now and I wasn't listening to you, how would that make you feel in that situation? And also what about your neighbor here? That person's listening and they can't concentrate. How would that make you feel? And driving that point quite deeply in and really getting them to understand that again, that those actions have implications, not just on yourself, but on other people that there's, there's more to their community, to their class than just their own experience of it. And that I think is a, is a big aha moment for us, you know, early on in, in formulating this is, you know, the beyond yourself that you're, we often kind of walk around through this tunnel lens that everything's about yourself and not about the community, the other individuals and your teacher, like how, how is, are you making your teacher feel you know, sometimes I worry it's get, it gets a little into like you're guilting them, but it's not. It's really just asking difficult questions. And we do a lot of that. We ask a lot of difficult questions and then push it harder, you know, press it a little bit more. What do you mean by that? What is, and not looking for that canned response of not good. What, what, what <laughs> right. do you mean by not good? Like, what are those emotions and trying to label emotions too? You know, that's something I think that we've come along, we've evolved as society is, you know, when I was growing up, mental health was just like an, un, that other thing. And it was like, yeah, there had it, you didn't, there was no degrees of mental health. There's certainly not like you work on like your physical health and, you know, emotions were pushed down, you know, I, are you hurt? Why are you crying? In the ambulance? You know, like, okay. tough enough. Yeah. <laughs> Versus like, you know, <laughs> how do you actually feel? Like, where do you feel that? And, and the idea of trying to, you know, looking at emotions and talking about them so that they aren't becoming a, another thing that they're discussed. And, and it's okay to discuss. I mean, what, listening to some of our older students, the way they talk about, you know, in situations where they're not feeling good, the way they express themselves. Sometimes I'm, I'm worrying we're creating monsters of, you know, See the interaction between our some of our grade five and six students is is quite mind blowing. But but they can they can identify exactly how they feel and how that the other 
people's actions are making them feel. And then in those conversations, they can actually flip it back and be like, I hear how you're feeling. And this makes me feel, you're making me feel sad right now. Yeah, well, you're, you're making <laughs> me feel sad. And I don't like how this is going. And I don't think I'm going to be the best version of myself after this encounter. You know, <laughs> I hope we've also given them the, you know, the, those, some of those aspects of like grit and perseverance and adaptability that, they can, you know, they can take that and figure out, you know, maybe expressing my emotions to the bully is not a good idea, but I can go and express my emotions to my friend or my parents and get it off my, off my chest out there and not being internalized. Treat people the way you want to be treated and the sky's the limit. You will succeed. It's just, it's as simple as that. Do you have any systems or ways of staying organized that you help, helps you keep those touch points with so many people that you've interacted with? I mean, there's part of me that puts names on a spreadsheet and maybe gently keeps an eye on that. But ultimately, it's really that something reminds me of a person I want to reach out. Or when I come across a person that has an impact on my life, like yourself, Christine, I have really appreciated our conversations over the years and being able to work with you as well. Those people just stay in my mind and I want to keep those relationships up. They're really important to me. And I find that the more that you do that, there's no downside to that, right? Uh, Both personally and professionally, I think that it's great to have that Rolodex, you know, or that gentle spreadsheet, but I don't really have a solid process around it. I just, yeah, I just... It kind of comes naturally in a way. Is that terrible to say? (laughs) Not terrible at all. It's brilliant. I just am so impressed because I'm like you where I meet wonderful people that blow my mind and I want to stay in touch with. I get into that, you know, too busy kind of thing so that sometimes I come back and I'm like, okay, I need to go reconnect, right? And so again, you know, I'll see something on LinkedIn or I'll see, you know, someone's name come across the announcement of your son. Okay, great. There's a great reason to connect or a great reason to, you know, like you said, remember that person. But I was just wondering because I'm like, you are so masterful at it. It's wonderful. What I will say is, you know, I say that it comes naturally But in terms of even, you have sparked a memory in my mind of my current boss, Trevor Archer, who is amazing. Another really inspirational person who has, you know, he he truly embodies that we're in this together. You know, he really empowers you. He lets you make those high stakes decisions and asks for your input, is so genuine about, you know, let's figure this out together. But in that conversation, you know, we're always talking about work. We're always down to business. It's extremely busy environment, but he still makes the time to talk about that networking conversation. And manual life is such a big place. It's not natural there. (laughs) You you don't just bump into people in the hall, especially in the last two years. It has to be an effort. But ultimately, the conversations are all those getting to know you and just building that rapport, just like those personal ones that kind of we've, we've built up. That's amazing. That's a great, you know, so there's a bit of strategic. Sometimes it's kind of coincidental. Sometimes there might be that gentle list, but I even love the fact that Trevor does give you good coaching on reminding you who to reach out to. So it sounds like he's also very thoughtful about relationships. And so it makes it easier to, you know, brainstorm who should we be talking to. It's so true. And in terms of that aspect, I think that's a neglected aspect for a lot of people that being mindful about your networking and actually making it happen within your career, within your company. Know that every single one of your 
employees is looking for guidance in some way. You just have to find out what it is and you can help them. If you want to hear more, join me at christineleperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.